Let's talk. Docs. Hello, and welcome to Let's Talk Docs, a show where we explore the intersection of technical documentation, open source, and community. This is your host, Portion Eric. Here at Let's Talk Docs, we reach out to folks in the field who are elevating the craft of writing and maintaining docs. You'll hear stories about technologists who foster a culture of learning and inclusion through documentation. Thank you for joining us. So today we're going to talk about Google Season of Docs. And not only do we have the Google Season of Docs team here, but we also have a contributor. So I'm gonna go through all the bios and then we're gonna begin the conversation. So the first person we have is Romina. She is a Noogler, fairly recent Noogler, I should say, and joined the Season of Docs team in February. She will be taking care of the program management Season of Docs team with Erin, who continues to serve as an advisor to the program. We also have Ivana. Ivana is a technical writer, editor, and open source advocate with a background in linguistics and translation. Building on her experience as a documentation developer for enterprise security software and RESTful APIs, Ivana made it her mission to help people use software in a more efficient and more productive way. When she's not trying to convince people to embrace the API design first life, Ivana spends her time playing the piano and learning too many languages at once. No such thing. And her success in any of those things is somewhat questionable. Thank you, Ivana. And finally, we have Erin. Erin is the founder of the non-for-profit Wordnik, the world's biggest online dictionary. She is the author of three weird and wonderful books, the best-selling novel, The Secret Lives of Dresses, and most recently, The Hundred Dresses, a field guide to dresses. Seems like that's something I need to read after the show. And she is a regular contributor to the Boston Globe and Wall Street Journal. And her writing has appeared in the New York Times, Foreign Affairs, and So News. She served as an advisor to the American National Corpus, the Journal American Speech, the Wikipedia Foundation, and serves on the KPCB Design Council and is an honorary fellow of the Society for Technical Communication. Welcome. Yeah, we're super excited to talk about Google Season of Docs. I think maybe the most obvious place to start is with Aaron. Can you just tell us a little bit about kind of the origin story of the Season of Docs and kind of historically, and maybe some people are familiar with the, the Season of Code. And yeah, just kind of, can you talk a little bit more about kind of the, the background on Season of Docs? Sure. So Season of Docs actually started with Sarah Maddox, who I think is pretty familiar to the Write the Docs community. She's a Googler. She has an epic blog post about how to run a Docs sprint that you should definitely check out if you haven't already. And so inspired by Google Summer of Code, she and Andrew Chen, another Googler, were like, hey, why don't we do something similar, but with a focus on documentation? And so they kind of started it up and the first season was really successful. Like people really enjoyed the idea, if that makes sense. And it was really something that filled a gap, filled a need. And so the reason it's called Season of Docs and not Summer of Docs is because Sarah's based in Australia. So 
<laughs> so Sarah was not working in the open source programs office. Andrew was. And so Ramina and I are both based in Google's open source programs office. So when it came time for season two, Sarah went back to her extremely successful life as a technical writer at Google. And the program got handed over to us. That's wonderful. So kind of it got started from some of the tech writer folks in the organization, but then you kind of had somewhere to to kind of hand it off to, to kind of give it a little bit more of that longer term viability. Yeah, this happens a lot at Google where people like have a great idea and get it over the first finish line and then it finds a new home. I seem like it's pretty common in tech. Like you do have their builders, the people who are like the founders, and then you do have like other people who continue like what has been built. Yeah. The maintainers. <laughs> the maintainers, yes, yes, maintainers. If you mind taking a step back, Erin, you mentioned that there was an obvious need for documentation. Can you talk more about that obvious need? Well, the hard thing about talking about obvious things is that they seem obvious to you. Funny funny how that works. Yeah. So I think everybody who works in documentation understands that documentation is a huge force multiplier. And one of the things that Rihanna McNamara, another Googler, has talked about, I think, at Write the Docs in particular, is that documentation is also a way to build inclusion. So if you want to contribute to an open source project and it doesn't have great docs, then you have to find somebody. You have to talk to a human. And if you're new to the community, and you don't know any of the humans in the community, it can be hard to find an in where if there's good documentation and it tells you what you need to know, you can start contributing without having to be socially connected, without having to use social capital, without having to feel like, oh, I'm annoying somebody if I ask this question. And oftentimes people who are marginalized have a much higher barrier to am I annoying? Like they feel annoying more than they actually are. And so having good documentation helps not just the kind of production of open source, but also the community of open source, if that makes sense. Yeah, I, I love that. Just to kind of add one more thing that I always think of is is translation as well. Like the language barrier is so much lower with automated. I mean, <laughs> since we're talking to Google people with Google Translate, right? You can, <laughs> you can, you know, throw some documentation written in English. And if that's not your first language... It really does a whole, yeah, like trying to communicate with someone when not in your first language is a whole another barrier to kind of get over. And I love documentation and writing for that, that ability as well. Both projects and developers call out that documentation is a need, but saying that you need something and actually solving the problem, there's sometimes a big gap between those two things. Yeah, that's why it's commendable because I think we do have lots of conversations about empowering folks getting more people involved in open source, no matter where they're located. But I think documentation like makes that translation of making it happen. Yeah. And so the first season in 2019, there were 44 projects. And then after the last season, more than 150 projects have participated in season of docs. And one of the, the metrics that we look at is that do the orgs enjoy participating in season of docs? Because maintainers <laughs> don't have a lot of spare time. So was it a good experience? And so happily, org satisfaction, which we measure, has grown every year. And after the 2021 season, 93% of the orgs that participated said that they were satisfied with their experience. That's amazing. And it's great that you're actually keeping the metrics. 
So in terms of organizations, how do you choose organizations to participate in a season of docs? So first box we check is projects must be open source and operating under an OSI approved license. And so once we check that box, we reference our rubric when we are looking at the proposals. So some of the things that we're looking for are like, does the project have the organizational resources? Are there people to support the technical writer, volunteers, or like a full team? Do the metrics then make sense? So for example, if the goal is to have a hundred unicorns visit us every day, then does the project scope list out how you'll accomplish that? And then does the timeline also match up with the scope of work that needs to be done? And then how will you know that your new documentation will help solve your problem? What metrics will you use? How will you track them? And another thing that we look for is what will we learn as an open source community? What will we learn about the project? And we're looking for diversity. Diversity across domains, communities, typologies of documentation. So user guides, API documentation, tutorials. And we're also looking for diversity across audiences. Some projects are very scientific. Some are intended for people doing marketing. Some are about different languages and different niches in the ecosystem. And we're looking at big frameworks to small libraries. You mentioned diversity. Could you tell us what does your outreach look like? Is it the same as like if you're engaging a university as opposed to if you're engaging a DevOps open source project where they're based in Seattle? Some of the are doing outreach for season of docs. We're pretty lucky in that Google's open source blog has a pretty decent following. And so does Google's open source, you know, social media in general. We try to reach out through channels like the Write the Doc Slack to try to capture technical writers who may be connected with communities and, you know, they want some support to work with open source. We haven't done a lot of, I would say, directed outreach. People generally just come to us and they hear about... They hear about season of docs because they know about summer of code often, or they, you know, they have a friend of a friend who worked on season of docs and had a good time. And then the friend says, oh, your open source project is having documentation difficulties. Well, have you heard about (laughs) So really, we're not so much beating the bushes and trying to entice projects to come work with us because we really want the projects to be in it for their own reasons, right? We want them to say, hey, we have a problem. We think that more or better or different docs are going to solve our problem as an open source project, as an open source community. And we want the support of season of docs to solve this problem. We want more orgs to apply just to get more orgs to apply. We really are talking about what's the quality of the output instead of the quantity of the output. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That's actually one of the things kind of as you speak of quality and I think one of the big questions that a lot of people in the greater documentation ecosystem have is like those success metrics. I think you you mentioned one of the application criteria is like, how are you going to know if this was successful? <laughs> but I'm, I'm curious if you have a little bit more about how you think about what success looks like for these projects. Have you seen some themes across what's worked well? And just anything more you can share on kind of what that success picture for documentation looks like, I think would be really great to hear. So... When we measure project success, we first ask, 
whether they completed the program or not. <laughs> and we are happy to report that there were no dropouts in 2021. And then projects do tell us if their docs were successful. So for us, the questions are, you know, whether the problems you're trying to solve with the docs, how will you know if your docs are solving that problem? So what are those metrics? And then did you meet those metric goals? For some of these projects, they have longer timelines than others. And so we have follow-up surveys for the 2021 participants, and that goes about a year out. But we are still putting together the report for 2021, but we will be sharing what we learned about effective docs in open source based on the case studies that the 2021 project submitted. So that entails what kinds of problems, what kinds of docs, what kind of metrics do projects use to measure doc success? Did they work? And finally, we're looking at what they learned about working with technical writers. What are the top things that the organizations learned about working with technical writers? So I am still elbows deep in this report. <laughs> it's a lot because every project is different and trying to like boil it down to a report. It's kind of like wanting to go off every single thing in the collection. I was like, ooh, we really need to show this, this, another thing. But one thing that really stood out is that if a project does not already have technical writing resources, they often are unsure how to recruit a technical writer, how perhaps to work with a technical writer. Because Season of Docs is a paid program, the technical writers are paid. And we use Open Collective to pay the technical writers. Some projects just really didn't have... Sorry, them. shout out to Open Collective. All right, you did it. Yes. Right. <laughs> yeah. And so Open Collective was hugely, hugely supportive to projects that really were great at code and bad at bookkeeping. So it can definitely be a challenge to go from a model that doesn't involve payment, right, to a model that does. Especially when you're working with talent around the world. Yes, that was a big source of friction. It can be surprisingly hard to get even relatively small amounts of money across the globe. Yeah, this is a, a problem I'm I'm very familiar with. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I do think kind of to reference some of the, the diversity kind of conversation of earlier, I think paying people is a huge win there, right? Like I do think that's that's one of the big things that that reduces the amount of, of diversity in open source is the fact that there's, yeah, you have to do it in your free time. And, <laughs> you know, that that is like self-selects for privilege in a lot of different ways. So I really love these programs, you know, both Summer of Code, Season of Docs for kind of having that money in the equation that really gives people the ability to dedicate some time to it and, you know, not have it feel like it has to be this volunteer effort. Uh, I think it's a huge benefit and a, a wonderful thing for the ecosystem. Moving money <laughs> is important as well. Because you do have the problem of paying folks, but then you also have the problem of paying folks that aren't part of like the euro system or like of the American dollar. So I think having an example of how to pay folks who are all over the world is once again, a great example. It gets more diversity and we have more participants with different views and everyone's enriched. I think the fact that you're solving that problem I think, once again, it's a good example and it's very brave. And I think more open source projects should think about, hey, A, am I paying? And B, how are we paying people from different regions? It's a tricky problem. You know, I think what we've got mostly works, but it doesn't necessarily work across the board at all times and places for everyone. 
And so I think we need a lot of other solutions in the ecosystem for all sorts of different work, like security work. That is yes. huge right now. And honestly, I would not have the first idea how to compensate security work because I get a lot of super low quality bug bounty requests for things that aren't really bugs. And I feel like maybe that's not the optimization we need in that particular ecosystem, but I'm not an expert. I think it also gets to a talent question as well. Like from my small experience of traveling, when it comes to security, like I meet a lot of security minded engineers in like Germany or Eastern Europe. And it would be great once again, in terms of like getting that regional talent, finding them and having the incentives in place. I actually have another question where it seems like it's obvious. Throughout this conversation, we talked about problems, documentation solving problems. Do you mind if we just dig in and be really explicit about what are these problems that documentation is solving for these open source organizations? I would love to hear a little bit from Ivana from her personal experience. Well, I think I'll pretty much validate everything you've said, Erin. I think your outreach efforts are working really well because the Right to Dogs community is exactly where I've personally heard about Season of Dogs in the first place and where a lot of our participants and candidates heard about it first as well. And in terms of problems that we're trying to solve, they're usually related to something that, you know, might sound simple or obvious, but is in fact often quite a big problem, which is just content gaps, undocumented features, undocumented behavior, undocumented user journeys or paths to getting to product and getting to use it. On the other hand, there is also the thing where when you have an open source project, which is completely open and anyone can report issues with it, you will also have documentation issues reported from all different kinds of users and you need help in resolving those issues. And a good way to do that is to find someone through this through this program to help you resolve those issues. Because a new person on the team who is not super familiar with the product can really give a valuable perspective on the product itself and on your documentation as well, because this person is not cursed with the knowledge that everyone else is. <laughs> That's a really important point, Amana. I think the curse of knowledge is an underappreciated curse. And so I think of the value of bringing a new technical writer to an open source project is just a fresh pair of eyes saying, huh, why do y'all do this this way? Yeah, no, I, I think a theme of this conversation has been like, please explain the obvious assumptions that you're making Porsche has been doing a great job. And I think that's, yeah, that's the value of, of an outside person, right? They come in and they're like, wait, what? Like you, you all seem to have this context that we're never writing down or explaining to anyone. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. There's so much implicit knowledge. And one of the things that we actually suggest, like if you're an open source project and you don't really know like what you should do, where you should start, start with a docs audit. Just start with a docs audit, just figure out what's there. And we have a template in the season of docs GitHub to help you do that. I do documentation audits for companies all the time, and it's a great level setter. It's great to know exactly what's in your documentation, what's working, what's not, because too many times people are like, or organizations, I should say, are like, hey, 
we don't know what's wrong. This, the documentation doesn't read well, or it sounds like engineers wrote it, but there's not anything like really concrete in terms of like the critique of the documentation or figuring out what works well. Right. And we worked with Daniel Beck to produce this documentation audit template. And I think he's a familiar also well known to many in the Also right well known box. for checklists. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, checklists are my favorite flavor of list. I mean, lots of people say top 10 <laughs> lists, that's their favorite list, but maybe I like checklists. So can we get back to Ivana? So Ivana, we earlier talked about outreach and we're curious, how did you learn about the Google season of docs? Yeah, so I have to give you a completely honest answer, which is I don't really remember anymore. <laughs> but I was already familiar with the Google Summer Code program. So, you know, just as Eric said, people know about it so they can hear about this too. Because the KDE community where I was a contributor, they actually regularly participate in Summer of Code. So the whole concept of this was, you know, it wasn't entirely new to me. But I do remember just being delighted that, you know, a program specifically for technical writers actually exists. I was like, oh, this is going to be great. Someone remembered technical writers exist. And yeah, if you want to know how we actually decided to participate at Redockly, the company where I worked at, it was an idea brought up by my tech writer teammate, uh, Swapnil. He was actually a guest on this podcast previously. So he brought up this idea because he himself was familiar with it as a participant in a previous season of the docs. So I think everyone on the team was just immediately on board with the idea because our documentation really needed some serious help. And this seemed like a really, really good way to solve that. Actually, Swapnil recommended Ivana and I'm so glad to have you here. So in terms of your time with Season of DOS, could you tell us what was your biggest takeaway from your experience? Yeah, so I think it also kind of relates to just knowing what value you gave from this project. For us, the biggest takeaway or maybe the lesson that we would share with any other organization or company planning to take part is measure your dogs because you can't even imagine the impact that even a relatively small change can have on your documentation. And what I mean by measure your dogs is start using some kind of analytics tool to track who reads what and when and how in your documentation. So one of our projects last year, I'm going to try just to use like a real world example, was to add the documentation for our open source project Redoc to the main documentation website. This content was completely absent from the website and part of the Season of Docs project was to add it. After this, we saw a massive increase in website visits. I don't know the exact number, but it was something like 200 percent or some huge numbers that wow. make you oh. make you question your entire math knowledge where you're like is this actually <laughs> possible you know so yeah measuring the impact is one of the ways you can really gauge the success of the project and it's also a good way to counter all those people who say oh no one reads the docs anyway when you have actual numbers to back up your statements then you know how many people read which documentation, it, it becomes a lot easier to make certain decisions related to content. Of course, it can be challenging if you have like a small documentation team that can't really take this extra responsibility. 
of managing analytics tools or if you're an organization that can't or doesn't want to use analytics tools because of like privacy concerns or maybe just your principles. It's also true that many visitors, like readers of your documentation, they might block analytics tools in their browsers. So this picture, you get the numbers that you get. They will never really be entirely representative of the reality, but I think it's still a worthwhile investment if you can afford it. And there are really good open source solutions for analytics that you can use for free. I have shared some links with the host, so we can probably post them into the show notes for anyone who is interested. Yeah, I think like Plausible is part of it. I can't think of the other ones off the top of my head. Vanna, can we take a step back? You mentioned about analytics, and I think this is so important. Let's say that you're a technical writer and you don't really have a background in analytics. Can you tell us how would you read the analytics? Like what software are you using? What are you looking for? What is analytics 101 for a technical writer? I'm not really an expert. I can't claim to have extensive knowledge or experience with this. I can tell you what we did. So we actually used just Google Analytics. And the primary sort of indicators we looked at were, as I mentioned, website visits. So how many people visit each page, how long they stay there, and where do they leave? So when they leave your website, right, the documentation page, the article that they're reading, where do they go? Do they go to another page? Do they follow the links which you provided from them in the documentation? Or did it just go somewhere else entirely? And another interesting data point is how do people come to your documentation in the first place? So do they come from searching for a particular term or do they come from some referred links somewhere else? Those are also interesting data points that you can sort of correlate to the issues they're having, the questions they're trying to find the answers for in your documentation. I'm asking because we actually work with an analytics specialist, but the thing is that she comes from the e-commerce world. And so like time on a page, sometimes is necessarily not a bad thing because you could have easily found your answer quickly and then left. But I just think there needs to be like more awareness of how to use web analytics if you're like a technical writer. So Vanna, thank you for the real world examples. We're all about real world examples here. I think what Vanna said is really worth internalizing measure Absolutely. And if you're not comfortable with analytics tools, remember that a lot of analytics are just proxies for behaviors. On GitHub, you might be able to measure behaviors that you care about directly, right? How many people have forked your project, which means they might be thinking about contributing? Or how many people have opened an issue, which means they're really engaged? Or it means that they can't find what they need in your docs. (laughs) So they have to open an issue to get the answer, right? How many pull requests do you get? If you have a project that has its own ecosystem, right, where people can build plugins or do add-ons, how many of those are people creating? Are they building bridges between your project and other projects? Because really, no project is an island anymore. So can you measure actual direct engagement? And how does that relate? to your documentation, right? If you improve the documentation about, hey, how to open a pull request, and then you get more pull requests, I would say that your documentation is probably successful at doing the thing that you wanted it to do. I love this conversation. I know for our listeners, so we do this to Zoom and I have like a whole bunch of emojis and I'm only putting (laughs) these emojis because I don't want to go like, yes, yeah, 
every other sentence because I agree with everything that you're saying and we just need to get the word out there about web analytics and how it is a proxy for behavior. Like you should have the numbers, but you should also have like a framework for how to interpret those numbers as well. Right. Numbers tell a story and you need to figure out what that story is to be able to really understand what the numbers are telling you. (laughs) A million visitors to your documentation and no users is not a success story. Do you want people to just come and read your docs or do you want people to use your project? I think most people want users or community members. I actually was going to note this when we were talking about analytics. The Google Search Console is wonderful for figuring out how people are finding your docs. I feel like we're kind of, you know, talking a lot about online business tools as well here. But like, you know, really thinking about your SEO, what are your users searching for? Are they ending up on the right page? when they search for those terms, those are all super important ways of like making sure people are getting the information they need. And I've been a a huge fan of Google search console because you can really look through that and be like, what terms are people searching for? What are people clicking on? And then like, what terms are people searching for that they're not clicking into our docs, maybe because we're not covering this topic effectively enough, but we're in the results because it's in our ballpark. It really gives you that idea for maybe some other things you could be covering in your content. So yeah, there's, there's a whole ecosystem of tools here. It kind of feels like it helps you find your secret friends, which is like (laughs) people that like, (laughs) so I've been seeing this with some of the hardware projects where they're like, Hey, we now need to have documentation to work on this piece of hardware because we found out that people are trying to port our project to this piece of hardware and we didn't know. But if you see in your search terms, like Raspberry Pi project name, that probably means people are trying to run your thing on the Raspberry Pi. And they're your secret friends. You didn't know that they were your friend. (laughs) That's a great way to motivate folks to use Google (laughs) Analytics or plausible. The thing about the Google Search Console, it's all Google's data. There's nothing running on your site. They're just telling you how people are finding your site via their tooling. So no privacy questions there. You're able to just get that data without setting anything up, which is cool. It feels like we're showing a lot of the value of having these folks participate. But I do think we also need to cover, right? Like how can someone very actively, it's like if you're interested in season of docs as a writer or as a project, how do you take part? Like what are the steps you need to do? Ivana, could you tell us from your perspective, what was the process like when you figured out, hey, I want to participate in a Google season of docs? So I think generally, very, very broadly speaking, As a project that's looking for participants, we see two types of writers applying. It's those who have contributed to open source before or are somewhat familiar maybe with your project or with open source projects in general. And then there are those who are completely new to this whole space and they just want to try something new, something different, learn new skills. So I think the answer, of course, depends on what kind of writer you are and what you want to gain from this whole experience when you're applying to a project. So I think the advice I would give to people applying would be to try and decide early on, what is it that you want to focus on? Is it learning more about this whole process of contributing to open source? How to work in an open source community, you know, how to maybe work with docs as code, or if you want to focus on improving your specific writing skills, creating specific types of content, Or maybe you want to work on setting up an information architecture or maybe work more on the UX writing side of things. So 
I think it's also important to keep in mind that it's a time-limited project, so you won't really have time to do everything. <laughs> so it's it's really important to have a clear goal for yourself as a writer. And once you have that, I think it's much easier to choose a project that aligns with what you actually want to do. So when you find a project or two or more <laughs> that interests you, take a good look at their guidelines and start preparing your project proposal. So I think everyone will probably confirm that, you know, there are already really great templates for writing a proposal and there are examples from previous seasons of dogs that you can use to, to prepare a really good, strong proposal and try to be as specific as possible in this proposal. Focus on the deliverables you want to create, explain how you plan to create them. Because I think it's difficult to understand, you know, as an organization, if you have a very vague proposal, it's kind of difficult to understand what you're actually trying to do. So if possible, keep it specific and tight, focused on producing something of value. Yeah, I think for us, you know, as an organization, the biggest challenge was probably choosing the technical writer because we had just so many great applications. But yeah, I think if you really figure out what your main goal of this is and prepare a strong proposal, it's a great way to start. Thank you. Romina and Erin, are there dates that we should know, procedures that we should know about if we want to apply for the Google Season of Docs program? So Erin just put up the link for um, the GitHub page for Google Season of Docs. Their participants can add their information on there if they're interested in applying to the organizations. And organizations can also add their information on there. And I just want to let you all know that April 14th is when we are going to publish who we accept in the 2022 program. So look out for that. And after April 14th, that's when the program begins. There will be some organizations who may not have a technical writer by April 14th, and that's okay. They can still continue to look for those technical writers that are right for their project. And the deadline for that, for hiring a technical writer is May 16th. And then from then on until the end of the program, which is about November 15th, that's when final projects and evaluations and case studies are about due. I should probably point out that if you first started following the Season of Ducks program in 2019, you might not be aware of the change we made last year. So previously, much like Summer of Code, the technical writers applied to Google and Google matched up the technical writers with the projects. But we changed that last year because for a couple of different reasons. One, we were collecting a lot of email addresses of technical writers that we really didn't need to be holding on to. Everybody wants to minimize the amount of PII that they are in contact with. And also like, we're not the projects. The projects really know what kinds of technical writing expertise they want and need. And so we thought, okay, why don't we just get out of the way? We accept the organizations and we give the organizations support materials so that they can choose their own technical writers. So now technical writers don't apply to Google. Technical writers reach out directly to the accepted orgs that they want to work with. And that means every org can have the individual like hiring and recruitment process that fits their needs instead of a one size fits all. And so when we publish the list of accepted orgs on the 14th, interested technical writers should reach out to those projects that interest them 
say, hey, are you still hiring a technical writer? Here's why I want to work with you. Here's the value that I could bring to your project. Here's how I think I can help you solve your problem with docs. And then the orgs are supposed to have a technical writer signed up by the 16th of May of this year. Does that make sense? It totally yeah. does. And it seems like it fosters more of a direct relationship and a direct process between the organization and a technical writer. Yeah, we really want to get out of the way. You know, we're here to support and run the program and provide resources. But the program's really about the connection between the projects and the technical writers. It's not really yeah. about Google. The closer you can get the decision-making to the, the kind of actual work being done, I think you're, you're going to get better results because they have way more information around what they need. Sounds like a great change to the programs. And also one of the big differences this year, Summer of Code also changed in that you don't necessarily have to be a student to participate in Summer of Code this year. But previously, Summer of Code was really about students. But most of the technical writers who are participating in Season of Docs are working professionals. They're not necessarily students. So they don't need as much structure as students do to participate in a program. And it seems like yeah. it also makes it more inclusive as well. We are striving every day to be more inclusive. There's a long way to go. Awesome. Well, on that note, before we end the show, does anyone have any shout outs or something that you'd like to promote or put out there? I just want to say again that without Sarah Maddox and Andrew Chen, this program would not exist. This was not part of their day jobs. They like created this. They really had the vision. And I'm just grateful every day that I get to participate in this program. And that wouldn't have happened without them. And also Cassandra Dillon has been the program manager for the last couple of years. And she is on an extremely well-deserved holiday right now which is why she's not on this show. But if you've been participating in Season of Docs for the last couple of years and had any questions or any trouble or any problems, Cass is the person who solved them cheerfully and efficiently. And she is the queen of Google Sheets, I have to say. We don't have a huge infrastructure to run this program. There's not a cohort of engineers that make this work. It is Cast and Romina and Google Sheets and me asking awkward questions at inconvenient intervals. The world, like, the world runs that's how this program <laughs> And awkward questions. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much, everyone, for joining us. Erin, Romina, and Ivana, this has been a great panel and a great show. And we really do appreciate your time. For everyone else out there, thank you for joining us today. To stay up to date on future episodes, subscribe for free to this podcast on your favorite app. You can find us on Apple, Google, and Spotify. Share, like this podcast with friends. It's a way that we can grow our community. If you have ideas for future episode topics or would even like to come on as a guest, please email us at letstalkdocs at sustainoss.org. We hope you enjoyed this episode. And until next time, keep writing and shipping those docs. Yay!